As we celebrate the third Sunday of Advent, we will light the candle of joy. We all desire joy, yet it can be so difficult to attain. When we are able to experience joy, it often seems fleeting and momentary. However, lasting joy is something that is spoken of in Scripture. God's Word reveals to us that lasting joy comes from knowing God. But in our fallen state, how can we, mankind, know God? How can we be made right with God? It was in the darkness of night to shepherds in a field that God revealed these answers to these questions. When an angel of the Lord appeared to them with the message of good news of great joy. The announcement of Jesus' birth signaled to the world the connection between Jesus and joy. To know Jesus is to have access to true and lasting joy because in knowing Jesus, we can be made right with God. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews reminds us, however, that the presence of joy does not mean the absence of suffering and rejection. When he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What an encouragement it is for us to know the complete joy that we will one day have when Jesus returns. That can be experienced to some degree now for all who know him. Today we light the pink candle of Advent, the candle of joy. Please join us in this prayer. Father, we thank you for sharing with us good news of great joy. Thank you for sending Jesus to save us from our sin. This Christmas, may we experience joy, remembering his first coming, as we also long for his return. In Jesus' name, amen. pray once more before we open God's word. Father, we know that your son was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by you, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Father, we give you thanks for this son that we know as Jesus, he came and took upon himself our sin, died on the cross, and we might have eternal life. 
And he was raised from the dead, showing that you were pleased with his sacrifice. And because of that, we can have joy. We can have hope knowing that he will return again and call home those who are his. Father, we are grateful for this good news. We give you thanks for this season that reminds us of his first coming and encourages to encourages us to look forward to his second. So Father, I do pray this morning as we open your word that you would help us, pray that you would help me, I pray Father that uh, we would leave this place today a changed people, encouraged by your word, strengthened by the good news of your son, and ready to go out into a world of darkness with the light of Christ in hopes that we might share that good news with others and see them come to Jesus by faith and repentance. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Well, we are in the third week of our Advent series, which we're calling The Birth of the Son. And in this series, we've been looking at well-known sons of the Old Testament and, and thinking about how they point us to the coming Christ the coming Son of God. Last week we considered Isaac, the promised son, and and saw how he was the forerunner of Jesus, the promised Messiah. This week we'll be looking at Joseph from the Old Testament, who was the rejected son. In our Tuesday morning men's Bible study that we have here at Trinity, we've been studying the book of Genesis over this past year, and Way back in January, we began, and week by week, chapter by chapter, we have been working our way through this first book of the Bible. And let me tell you, for me, it has been incredibly beneficial and, and profitable. I can only hope that the other men in the study have, have profited as much as I have. But in that study, over the last eight weeks or so, we, we've been swept up in the crescendo of the narrative as Joseph, the son of Jacob, comes into focus. From chapter 37 to the end of Genesis, you see how all along through Genesis, God has been providentially providing for and working through his people to keep his covenants. And all of his covenant keeping has has led up to the events of Genesis 37 and following. Every time it looks as though the, the covenants of God are at risk of being nullified. God comes through in miraculous ways. And Joseph's story is no different. We are reminded over and over that if God makes a promise, he will keep it. Two weeks ago, Nick preached on the first son, Adam. Nick showed us that Adam made a mess of things, right? He broke God's good creation. Adam pretty much did everything wrong. Because of that, he was impacted by the the curse of the fall, and he bore the consequences of his actions. But in the life of Joseph, we have a stark contrast to Adam. Joseph seemingly does everything right. He was faithful, trustworthy, and, and virtuous, yet he was rejected and despised by many who were closest to him. Does that remind you of anyone else? When you study the life of Joseph, you see glimpses of Jesus, the Son of God. 
In the life of Joseph, we have a pointer who causes us to fix our gaze on the horizon in hopeful anticipation of the one who would do everything right. Perhaps the most astounding thing about the rejection that both Joseph and Jesus experienced was this. Their being rejected was the very thing God used to make life possible for those who rejected them. I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. So whether a hard copy of the Bible or on an electronic device, please turn with me there. I think you will benefit from following along with me in the text. You know, rejection is a a direct result of the fall, but it is also used by God as a means to an end. It's not just that God allowed Joseph and Jesus to be rejected. No, much more than that. It was in and through their rejection that God facilitated salvation. A couple of weeks ago, Nick was able to synthesize his message in one point. Jeff last week was able to boil his down to two points, and because we have a pattern going and I don't want to upset the apple cart, I have three points today. So what I'd like for us to do this morning is trace the life of Joseph from his rejection to his ascension to his reconciliation with his brothers, and and then I want us to close with seeing how Joseph was used by God to point us to Jesus. So for those who are taking notes, here is our first point, an undeserved rejection. Look with me at Genesis 37. We're going to begin in the second half of verse 2. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. It's one thing to be rejected and despised when you've done something to deserve it, right? We've all been there. We've all done something. And because of our actions, we've we've experienced rejection. But Joseph has clearly not done anything at this point in the story to warrant the rejection that he's going to experience. And Moses tells us three things that led to Joseph being rejected by his brothers He brought a bad report of them to their father, Jacob. He was Jacob's favorite son, and he had a dream. Now, someone might allege that Joseph was a tattletale, a goody two-shoes, and a boaster, and that he had it coming to him. But Moses portrays Joseph as a righteous young man who is truthful. He's obedient, and he's sincere. Joseph's actions throughout the remainder of Genesis will show that he is consistent and by all accounts undeserving of this rejection that he would experience. Three times in chapter 37, we're told Joseph's brothers hated him. And after Joseph tells his father and brothers about a second dream, Moses reports that the brothers are also jealous of Joseph. 
You can imagine the relational rejection that Joseph was experiencing from his brothers. If, if they were this hateful to and jealous of him, that would just be crushing in and of itself, right? Though Joseph's mother had died, he had a father who loved him, so it is likely that, that he could stomach this rejection from his brothers. But the brothers' hatred and jealousy would lead to something far more wicked than just social rejection and ignoring. Joseph had done absolutely nothing to deserve what his brothers were about to do next. Look at verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. This is the very family God had chosen to mediate his covenants through, and they are acting like madmen. These brothers are a collection of men whose hatred and jealousy have blinded them from thinking clearly. They are so fueled by their passions that they are plotting to take the life of their brother, their own flesh and blood. Friends, let us learn from Joseph's brothers our sin, which is nothing short of us departing from God's plan. It leads us to do things that we never imagined we were capable of doing. Additionally, departing from God's plan carries consequences that impact impact those closest to us. In many ways, you can trace this dysfunctional situation Joseph finds himself in back to the sin of others who came long before these men in this moment. There are always at least two reasons why we should flee temptation and avoid sinning against God. Here's the first one. We never want to presume on the mercy of God. We never want to think God is merciful and gracious. He'll forgive me of my sin. We never want to, as as Paul warns against, sin so that grace may abound. So another reason that we should want to flee temptation and avoid sinning is this. We don't want others to pay for our sin. Again, think about the, the fact that the reason these brothers are in the situation that they're in with Joseph can be tied back to the sin of others in previous generations. So if we want to preserve generations beyond us, we should be cognizant of, mindful of our righteousness. We should want to flee temptation and avoid sinning because of this. These men, these brothers, they were playing fast and loose with the covenantal promises of God. And they were jeopardizing what would lead to their rescue from sin. However, little did they know, God would actually use their sinful disobedience as the means of their salvation. There's something interesting to note in verse 19. Most of our translations say something like, here comes this, that, or the dreamer. But the Hebrew actually says, here comes the Lord of dreams. And this is significant because it reveals just how clueless the brothers were to the ways of God. By saying Lord of dreams, they meant this silly little teenager was only capable of being Lord in his dreams. But Joseph would be a Lord to these men in the years to come. 
At present, they were plotting to kill him, but in the future, they would bow their knees to him. While we don't have time to dwell on it today, interwoven in this wicked plan of the brothers is a plan of rescue that Reuben, his older brother, Joseph's older brother, he hatches, but, but it fails due to his lack of leadership. And this lack of leadership and, and Reuben's failure to stand for what is right leads to Joseph's rejection by his brothers. Another brother hatches a plan, and it's Judah's misguided leadership that wins the day when he's able to convince his brothers that they should not miss out on an opportunity to rid themselves of their brother and make money doing it. Look at verse 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They, the the Midianite slave traders, the Ishmaelites, they took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph's brothers, in their hatred and jealousy of him, sold him to slave traders who ended up taking him to Egypt where they would sell him to Pharaoh's captain of the guard. In the wise words of Forrest Gump, the great philosopher, stupid is as stupid does, right? Y'all have seen Forrest Gump. I've heard that sin makes us stupid, and I I suppose that that could be true, but what we see happening in chapter 37, especially in verses 26 and 27, is that sin shows us to be stupid. It's in our sinful actions that we reveal a lack of wisdom and righteousness. How Judah could justify that selling his brother into slavery was any less harmful and devastating than murdering him is really hard to understand. In a real sense, selling him into slavery was signing his death certificate. It was noble of Judah to say, let not our hand be upon him, but by rejecting Joseph and selling him into slavery, essentially their hand was upon him. The brothers' sin of hatred and jealousy had led them to sin against their brother by rejecting him. Joseph had done nothing at all to deserve the rejection that he was experiencing. And yet, behind the scenes, God was at work. Despite the wickedness of Joseph's brothers, God had woven together and he was executing a plan of redemption. So we're not going to spend a great deal of time on Joseph's time in Potiphar's house or his time in the prison, but I want to make a couple of observations to set us up for our second point. Moses' careful portrayal of Joseph in Potiphar's house further underscores just how different Joseph was from his brother's. The morally bankrupt brothers could not do right, and Joseph is seen making one right decision after another. We're told in in chapter 39 that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Despite Joseph's success, can you imagine the pain, though, that he carried with him due to his brothers rejecting him and selling him out? True, he was doing well, But he was living in a foreign land, in a culture unfamiliar to him, with people that he didn't know. 
Joseph's boss, though, was not the only one who began to take notice of him. You'll remember Potiphar's wife asked Joseph for special attention, and Joseph, wanting to do right and honor his boss, wouldn't meet her demands. Feeling scorned, Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph, and he's rejected again by being thrown in prison. We're told again that Joseph makes wise and right decisions because the Lord was with him. Joseph is rewarded for this and and put in charge of the prison. It's in the prison that Joseph is again rejected. You'll remember this time, Joseph correctly interprets the the dreams of two of Pharaoh's men. Joseph's only request is that he be remembered and released from prison. I've said a couple of times already that Moses has been showing Joseph to be righteous, and in his conversation with Pharaoh's cupbearer, we see why. Joseph says in Genesis chapter 40, verse 14, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, out of this prison. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. But the cupbearer doesn't remember Joseph. His rejection of Joseph is not active, it's not malicious, he's not intentionally doing anything to reject him, but in forgetting about Joseph's request, he passively rejects him. We don't know exactly how long Joseph was in prison, but we do know that two whole years would pass from this conversation with the cupbearer between Joseph and and this man of Pharaoh before Joseph would be remembered. Joseph is again given the opportunity, though, to interpret dreams. Two whole years later, the cupbearer remembers and tells Pharaoh that there is a Hebrew that can help, and they pull him up out of the pit and clean him up and put him before Pharaoh. I want to take just a couple of minutes to remember where we are and how we've gotten to this point. Young Joseph, at 17 years of age, has had two dreams. In sharing these dreams with his brothers, they reject him by selling him to slave traders. Joseph is hauled off into a foreign land where he is rejected two more times, once by Potiphar and again by the cupbearer. Thirteen years of Joseph's life have passed with him in a foreign country, and some, if not most of that 13 years, spent in prison. Joseph is now 30 years old, and he stands before Pharaoh as a vessel of the Lord to interpret two of his dreams. He stands before the most powerful man on the planet. And this brings us to our second point, an unlikely ascension. An unlikely ascension. Joseph, he gives all of the glory to God in telling Pharaoh that the answers he's looking for would come from God, not from him. Joseph understands the Lord is using him as a vessel to communicate to Pharaoh, and and Joseph is clear with Pharaoh about this. Pharaoh receives his interpretations from Joseph, and he, he learns that there will be seven years of plenty, and then there will be seven years of famine that would affect Egypt and beyond. But Joseph, he doesn't stop with the interpretations. though. he goes on to formulate an emergency management solution for Pharaoh. Look at chapter 1, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him listen bow the knee thus he set him over all the land of Egypt moreover Pharaoh said to Joseph I am Pharaoh and without your consent no one shall lift lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt Joseph who 10 minutes before this conversation with Pharaoh had been in prison. He was now being told that he would be the second most powerful man just under Pharaoh. In the most unlikely of ways, this man who had been rejected many times over had ascended to a place I'm sure he never thought he'd be. Can you imagine what he's experiencing? Can you imagine what he is feeling, what must be running through young Joseph's mind. Joseph went from one pit under the direction of his brothers to another pit under the order of Potiphar. He had been despised, rejected, and forgotten, basically left for dead. He arises from the pit victorious. Can you believe this? This is just amazing. It could have been easy for Joseph, though, to assume that his quick ascension to power was triggered by his wisdom and insights, but he knew better. The Lord had helped him, and it was the Lord who had been at work all along, even in those dark and lonely days of Joseph's imprisonment. So we know Joseph felt this way from the names that he gave his sons. Joseph has two sons of his own, and the meanings of his sons' names, it gives us insight into Joseph's understanding of the Lord's activity in his life. The meaning of the name of his firstborn has the sense of forget. And in verse 51, we hear Joseph say, For God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of his second son carries the meaning twice fruitful. And in verse 52, we read, For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has done these things. And Joseph is fully aware of the Lord's providential activity. It's not by coincidence that Joseph's sons were born in the years of fruitfulness before the years of famine would come. We're told the seven years of plenty came to an end, and by God's grace, Joseph executes the emergency management plan flawlessly. In verse 54, Moses tells us there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Grain at this point in time was essential for food, and food is essential for life. Therefore, if you wanted to live, you had to travel to Egypt to get the thing that was necessary for life. In essence, Joseph, once rejected and left for dead, now holds the keys to everyone's survival. This brings us to our third point, which is this, an unimaginable reconciliation. In Genesis 42, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain. And and Joseph, the Lord of dreams, is shown to be a Lord in real life. 
Look at Genesis 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Look who has the last laugh. Chapters 42 to 44 contain some incredibly heart-wrenching scenes of Joseph interacting with his brothers who had harmed him so greatly. They have no idea their brother uh, is the one that they've been dealing with until we get to chapter 45. And when Joseph, he couldn't take it any longer, he finally cries out revealing his identity to them. Look at verse 3 of chapter 45. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine what was going through their minds? So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God, has sent, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. But God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. It's unimaginable that the grieved party is the one who initiates reconciliation. But that's exactly what happens here between Joseph and his brothers. Although Joseph was the one who had been harmed, He is the one who takes the first step toward making things right with his brothers. How could he do that? He was a man of God. He was able to understand that while they had sinned against him, God had bigger and better plans. Namely, that he would use Joseph for an unimaginable purpose. Look again at verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph doesn't excuse their sin. As a matter of fact, he calls it out. He also doesn't hold it against them. What does he do? He forgives them. Three times in verses 5 to 8, Joseph attributes all that had happened to God's providential plan to preserve life. This makes sense then why Joseph would, would be able to offer reconciliation to his brothers. What an example Joseph is to us, to all of us. I'm not saying that we should excuse the sin of others, especially if they've harmed us emotionally, physically, or spiritually. But Joseph's story and his interactions with his brothers clearly shows us that forgiveness is always right and good. I know some of us in this room have been harmed in unspeakable ways by others. And while we can't excuse their sin, we can forgive them, the ones who have harmed us. So what is the connection between Joseph, the rejected son, and Jesus? How does Jacob's son Joseph figure in the Christ, in the, into the Christmas story? And 
and the hopeful expectation for the baby who would come to reverse the curse of the fall. Think back with me to Joseph's undeserved rejection. How much more was the rejection undeserved that Jesus would experience at the hands of sinful men? While Joseph stood out from his brothers and was portrayed by Moses to be morally upright, Joseph was still a sinner. Jesus, on the other hand, was completely sinless. Here's a sampling of verses speaking to this from Scripture. We're not going to go through each one, but I just want to give the references so that you can look over them again later today or sometime later this week. Consider all that Scripture has to say about the sinlessness of Christ. John 8, 29. John 19, 4. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Hebrews 4, 15. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. 1 Peter 2, 22. And 1 John 3, 5. If ever there was someone who did not deserve rejection, it was Jesus. John tells us in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And one verse later, in verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. If they weren't receiving him, what were they doing? They were rejecting him. Not only was he rejected by those who put him on the cross, he experienced some degree of rejection by nearly all of his followers. Never once doing anything to hurt anyone, to harm anyone, Jesus felt the crushing weight of the world's rejection. Furthermore, while Joseph certainly experienced rejection, he didn't choose it. Jesus willingly chose the ultimate rejection so that we could be accepted. We heard Hebrews 12.2 in our Advent reading. It encapsulates Jesus' embrace of the ultimate rejection. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus was rejected so that we can be accepted. How was this acceptance accomplished? Like Joseph, Jesus ascended to power and authority. Joseph was left for dead in the pit forgotten in a tomb of sorts, and was brought out of the pit so that he could ascend to a position of power. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried in a tomb where after three days he was resurrected and after appearing to his followers, ascended to heaven where we are told numerous times that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So what is he doing there? What is Jesus doing in his power and authority? With all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus is interceding for believers. He's taking our request before God, his Father. Friends, just as Joseph was benevolent after his ascension to power, Jesus wields his authority and mercy and grace. And this brings us to the final comparison. Joseph, having been rejected and sold out by his brothers, Offered them reconciliation. Though he could have held their offenses against them, he offered them mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are, are central in the story of Joseph. Do you see how reconciliation is made up of both mercy and grace? Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. Joseph's brothers deserved banishment at best and More realistically, they deserved death. 
it would have been perfectly understandable, especially in the culture of Egypt, for them to face execution for their offense, or at least for Joseph to turn them away from their request for grain. The other aspect of reconciliation is is grace. Grace is receiving what we do not deserve. And Joseph offered his brothers grace in at least two ways. He fed them and forgave them, though they didn't deserve either. Think about how this correlates to the, the reconciliation that Jesus offers us through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Though we deserve death for our sin, Jesus extends to us mercy. Though we certainly don't deserve grace, Jesus Jesus showers it upon those who will trust him for the forgiveness of their sin. John 1.16 tells us, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. In Jesus, God turns rejection into reconciliation. Jesus, the one who was rejected, becomes the one who reconciles. Colossians 1, 19 to 20 says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Joseph had to be sold out so that the nations could eat bread, lest they perish. Jesus had to be sold out so that the nations could eat the bread of life lest we perish. For the nations to live, they had to go to Joseph. That's what the text says, right? Very simply put, if they didn't go to Joseph to get the grain, they would die. In the same way, for us to live, we have to go to Jesus. There is no other means by which we can spiritually live and enjoy fellowship with God. Jesus, speaking in John 6.35, says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here's the beautiful thing about Jesus' first coming. In his life, death and resurrection. He has done what is necessary for us to be forgiven of our sin and accepted by God the Father. Here's what we have to look forward to in Jesus' second coming. Rejection will cease to exist. When Jesus returns, his acceptance of us will take center stage and we will never have to worry about being rejected again. There is only one way that we can be assured of a rejection-free future, and that is for us to be found in Jesus Christ. Have you been forgiven of your sin by turning in faith to Jesus? Have you gone to Jesus and bowed your knee? Let's pray. Father, what a glorious story this is of your servant Joseph who uh, was just rejected in so many different ways. It it is just really hard to imagine the pain that he felt and the grief that he experienced having been betrayed by and rejected by his family, left for dead by 
shipping him off to a foreign land. These sinful and wicked men did the unthinkable. But through your grace and mercy, you raised Joseph up so that the nations could eat. You raised Joseph up so that there could be reconciliation between himself and his brothers. And in a very similar way, because of our wickedness, Jesus was sent into a foreign country. And because of his ascension, following his death and resurrection, reconciliation is possible. Father, I pray that if there are those in this room who have never placed their faith in Christ, I pray today that they would go to him and that they would eat the bread of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.